We're also joined by Rhode Island Public Radio political analyst Scott McKay. Hi there, Scott. Good morning, everyone. Mike, here in Rhode Island, many people are transfixed by the battle over the future of the Pawtucket Red Sox. I know your specialty is the Massachusetts economy. So I wonder what your view is on how this is going to play out. Do you think the Pawn Sox will wind up in Worcester or are they more likely to stay in Rhode Island? Very good question. I don't know the particulars of the proposal, but I think the history of the economic impacts of minor league baseball franchises suggest that uh, I'm not sure who's actually going to win that battle, the person who ends up citing the team or the person who misses out on that opportunity. So I think oftentimes these efforts to attract sports teams tend to end up costing more than they return in terms of economic development impacts. And the Boston Globe reported last week that Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker could use many millions of dollars without legislative action to try and lure the Paw Sox. But I think it's fair to wonder whether Governor Baker would want to avoid setting a precedent that other professional sports teams might want to emulate. So do you think Governor Baker would be inclined to use the money at his disposal, economic development money, to try and attract the Paw Sox? I think the devil would would be in the details. Certainly, uh, Worcester is a priority for the state. It's our second largest city. It's uh, uh, home to the home neighbors to the home community of our lieutenant governor. And, it, and certainly landing the Paw Sox is a big deal for Worcester folks. So I think if it was a good deal, uh, I imagine our state economic development incentives might be deployed in that service. But are we going to give away the store? I don't think so. Let's go to Scott. Professor, when we look down at New Bedford, one of the, and I know some people think this is just existential, but it is a fact that climate change is already starting to affect the fishing industry. What can be done to combat this? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think there's a local action that could be taken to affect the way that uh, the climate is having an impact on our natural resources with those economic implications for the fishing industry. I do think the way that we manage development along our coastline needs to change sooner rather than later. Part of the problem is that we have the federal government insuring our coastal land through the flood insurance program and essentially subsidizing risky development. So I think we have to have a conversation on both sides of the border about how we're going to cope with the rising tides. I'm not sure if it's uh, something we can control to, to change the natural environment, to bring us back to the good old days when uh, the fish that we expected to be there were there. But I think we're living with the consequences every day. People in Rhode Island sometimes think that this is the only state that suffers from government corruption, but there have been a string of Massachusetts House speakers who've run afoul in the law. I wonder how you evaluate the difference or similarity in the quality of governance between Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Well, I come from the results matter school. And so, you know, what state government is charged with doing is meeting the needs of its people, um, putting the the Commonwealth in our case in the best position to be economically competitive and to provide opportunities for all of our residents to be prosperous. I think on that score, our government gets pretty high marks, relatively speaking. But I do think uh, we share a number of challenges with Rhode Island. Uh, we have significant infrastructure needs, particularly around transportation, water and sewer treatment plants, et cetera, that we haven't been able to muster the will to, uh, to deal with. I think part of that is that the federal government has been asleep at the switch in this regard for some time now. And so I think if we look at the results rather than the process, the outcomes are good. Clearly, we could have more competitive elections. Uh, and I do think, uh, you know, there's certainly room for reform. 
But uh, I can't think you can't argue with a lot of the success that's been had on our side of the border. In Massachusetts, uh, voters at the last election pretty emphatically uh, voted in a referendum to legalize marijuana. Now we see some politicians, including Governor Baker, trying to put the brakes on that just a little bit. And I'm wondering, what do you see as the economic impact in southeastern Mass of uh, a new market for marijuana? Well, we're already starting to see it. So the the tension really is between the new state law and the desire on the part of certain communities to resist uh, the retail establishments that are associated with the legalization of marijuana. Um, Much less controversial, though, is where we're going to cite the grow facilities, which have more substantial economic effects and uh, don't involve people coming into your community and purchasing marijuana. And so I think we've we've got some of the local control tensions there. I also think our government, like most governments, doesn't like, uh, you know, government by ballot question. I think the plurality of our legislators and certainly our governor were not uh, in favor of this particular ballot question. And so um, we have a history of slow walking uh, these kinds of things when we, in the wake of uh, of ballot questions that are not particularly popular within our state house, and I think this is no exception. We're talking with Mike Goodman, director of the Public Policy Center at UMass Dartmouth, and Mike, we were talking about Governor Baker a minute ago. He is consistently rated as perhaps the most popular governor in the United States, even though there are big parts of Massachusetts, including the southeastern Mass region, that seem to have more in common economically and culturally with Rhode Island than with the white-hot economy around Boston. So what's your explanation for that? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the returns from the last election, the Governor Baker's first election, he won by about 40,000 votes. So the margin wasn't incredibly... um, Uh, large. Massachusetts is interesting in that we uh, tend to enjoy split government with a legislature that's been controlled by the Democrats for generations. Uh, And aside from Deval Patrick, I think we can go back all the way to um, to Governor Weld, where we've had a steady stream of Republican uh, leaders and very popular Republican leaders. Certainly, Charlie Baker is part of that tradition. So I think he enjoys some popularity in the South Coast. But I think since most of our population is concentrated in our cities, which are traditionally Democratic strongholds, it's not surprising that those are areas where uh, many of our governors over the last couple of decades uh, have had to work very hard to get support. How soon do you think wind energy can become a linchpin of the economy in southeastern Mass? Well, it's happening. So the state uh, legislature and the uh, passed and the governor signed a, a, a law requiring the procurement. Those bids are in. We have three developers who were over the next, uh, uh, between now and 2027, are going to uh, develop and install 1,600 megawatts of offshore wind. So it's happening. I think, uh, you know, the timeline that the state has set out for this procurement suggests that we could see in late 2019 work actually beginning My colleagues and I at the Public Policy Center have been working with our state government to take a look at what that might mean, and I think it certainly will be a a giant construction project, and over the course of the lifespan of these turbines, a major source of jobs in the operation and maintenance fields. Public school students in Massachusetts consistently outperform their peers in Rhode Island, even if we compare uh, communities with similar economic profiles. What's your explanation for that? 
Well, I mean, in the early 90s, uh, there was a lawsuit in this, by a family in the city of Brockton claiming uh, that they were not getting their constitutionally due public education. The Massachusetts State Constitution, authored by Mr. John Adams himself, guarantees not only a free education uh, at the K-12 level, but a quality one. And so based on that promise in our Constitution, our St- Supreme Judicial Court told the legislature you need to figure out a way to equalize the uh, opportunities across all of our communities or else the court will impose a solution. That turned out to be very motivating. They, they implemented education reform. And while I think we can quibble about some of the unintended consequences, you can't argue with the overall results. Where I think we share a challenge with you is that we continue to have a very stubborn achievement gap, uh, particularly in our urban communities. And so even though I think unequivocally we have the highest performing K-12 schools in the country, the quality varies pretty dramatically from community to community. And so I think we have a lot more in common. All right, we're out of time, so we need to leave it there. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Great to be here. And from the Public Policy Center at UMass Dartmouth, Executive Director Mike Goodman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.